this is absolutely part of the fulfillment of this prophecy. And, you know, whether Zacharias understood it all or not, God gave him these words, and they speak to us now on this side of the cross, just as well as they spoke then. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Today, we are looking at one of my favorite passages from the Christmas story. And we're going to be talking about two unexpected witnesses. We're going to see how God gave the world eyewitnesses of Jesus' identity, of his work, and of John's identity and his work, and how both of these miraculous births would bring the fulfillment of prophecy that God had promised centuries before to Abraham. It's amazing how detailed and precise this story is, and the fact that God would give us such clear evidence of reality and truth and the unfailing faithfulness of his word moves me. These things went right over my head when I was an Adventist. It still shocks me a little when I realize how much I took the Christmas story for granted without realizing how even this account in Luke informs us and corrects our secular physical worldview. This story also confirms to us by the mention of eyewitnesses that John fulfilled God's prophecy that a prophet in the spirit of Elijah would come and turn the hearts of the nation to God and to each other before the coming of the Lord and that the Redeemer would come on schedule exactly as prophesied. And these people, living at the very end of the Old Covenant, saw the work of God just as He was about to inaugurate the New Covenant. Before we go on, though, I want to remind you that we love hearing from you. Your questions and stories encourage us. You can write to us at formeradventist@gmail.com. Go to proclamationmagazine.com. And you'll find our online articles and magazines. You can subscribe to our weekly Proclamation Magazine email letter. And you can also find the links to our YouTube channel and to this podcast. You can also donate using the Donate tab there. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts if you love this program. And now, Nikki, I have my question for you. As an Adventist... Did you notice Mary's song or Zechariah's? And what did you think the point of them was? Or did you notice them at all? I'd have to say I probably didn't notice them at all. I didn't read my Bible in context. So when I would read from the Bible, it was because someone was directing me to a passage. Mm-hmm. Or if I was on my own, it was because I was looking for something to help me. <laughs> But I I didn't just sit down and read for the sake of reading. I knew Mary's song existed because there's a song about Mary's song. (laughs) It's a Christmas song. Right. So I knew it was in there, but I'm not sure I ever read it. And I I don't recall ever reading or thinking about Zechariah's prophecy. Usually when I read scripture, it was an epistle or the Mm -hmm. Psalms or Proverbs. I didn't read the Gospels. You know, I didn't either. That's an interesting reaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say mine was very similar to that. I knew about Mary's song because so many Christmas plays would have the Magnificat there. Or having been a music major, I knew the Magnificat. 
figured in a lot of church music. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really know the contents of it. It just seemed like a lot of nice words. And as for Zechariah's prophecy, you know, I guess I knew it was there, but I didn't really know what it said, and it didn't seem that significant to me. So this week, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture. Why don't we start by reading Luke 1, 39-45, and just go through this story of Mary going to see Elizabeth, and we'll talk through that. Okay. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord." So, Nikki, when you read this, what strikes you first about this passage? It's really interesting because remembering, of course, that Elizabeth was old past childbearing years and she had become pregnant, that Gabriel had announced that to Zechariah and that she had become pregnant with John the Baptist when she wasn't supposed to be able to be pregnant. And now Gabriel has told Mary that she's going to have a child without being married and the Holy Spirit would overshadow her. And the next thing we learn is this. She hurried to Elizabeth. So what are your thoughts when you read this? Well, that very first verse always gets me because we don't get a lot of details about what goes on in the minds of the people. Right. But we see here that she arose and went in a hurry uh-huh. <laughs> to the hill country. And I love that he gave us that detail, not just that she went to go see Elizabeth. Right. It gives you a picture of Mary's heart and mindset. Of course. I mean, she just spoke with an angel and got this amazing news. Right. And the other thing is when we read about Elizabeth being filled with the Holy Spirit and the baby leaping in her womb, it brings my mind back to verse 15, where Gabriel told Zacharias that this child would be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And we see down below in verse 44, Elizabeth said that he leapt for joy. When he heard Mary's voice, Mm -hmm. which is amazing because... John was not born. I love this passage, Nikki, because it hit me a few years ago what an amazing thing it is that God gave an unborn baby the gift of being filled with the Holy Spirit before he was born, that he could hear the voice of Mary, that he leaped for joy. He had the supernatural revelation from God that this was his own Savior Mm -hmm. still in utero entering the room, and God gave an unborn baby the eternal position of being one of the first eyewitnesses of Jesus's identity. If there were ever any doubt about an unborn baby being a human, Mm -hmm. this would resolve that. Yeah. There's no place, there's no argument. This is one of the things that hit me, Nikki. I've, I've talked about this before, but how as an Adventist, I couldn't understand what the big deal about abortion was. Because an unborn baby, especially a baby who was, you know, not close to being born, I couldn't see how that could be considered any different from, you know, like unborn kittens. You know, they weren't viable, they couldn't live on their own. I couldn't see what the big deal was, but this made me realize this is a human This is a human with a spirit, with an identity, and God filled him with the Holy Spirit and made him an eternal witness before he was born of who Jesus was. 
And we have biblical evidence here that babies in utero have emotion. Yes. Because this is the inerrant word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. And she said that he leapt for joy. Yes. Babies have emotion. Surely an unborn child has all of the qualities of humanity. And this is an evidence of that. There's some really interesting programs that you can watch on TV that give evidence of babies hearing and recognizing the mother's voice or recognizing the father's voice. There's imaging that will show their facial expressions, you know, and that they can experience pain. And so we have all this great scientific evidence, but here scripture proclaimed these truths before we ever saw this stuff. It's amazing. One other thing about this little passage that really strikes me is that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit as well. So Mm -hmm. God gave her the gift of prophecy at that moment. Luke says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and cried out with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then this is what's so striking to me. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? And then she cites that John leaped in her womb when he heard Mary's voice. It's so interesting to me, Nikki, that the unborn John and the pregnant Elizabeth, when Mary entered the house and spoke, both of them knew that this was the mother of the Lord Jesus. And Elizabeth declares that Mary was the mother of her Lord So, Elizabeth knew that Mary had within her the Son of God. That's really interesting because the angel told Mary that Elizabeth was pregnant, but we don't see the angel telling Zacharias that Mary was pregnant. And yet, Elizabeth recognized that immediately, that she was the one carrying the Messiah that her son would go before as a forerunner. I find that really interesting, especially given that in first century Judaism, women were not considered viable witnesses in a court of law. They Mm -hmm. were not believable. And God gave an unborn baby and his mother the job of being the first eyewitnesses of Jesus before he was born. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? It really is. Yeah, and and the fact that this is something that Luke felt he could write in Scripture as usable evidence— again, just shows that he had the heart of the gospel. Absolutely. Well, the next section is Mary's response, if you want to say that. So, we have Elizabeth and John recognizing Mary and recognizing Jesus when the pregnant Mary walks into the room. And then we have this section from verses 46, ending with 56, where Mary breaks forth into prophecy And she utters this amazing and beautiful psalm. Would you like to read that, Nikki? And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. 
and Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. You know, when I think about the fact that people generally assume, based on what we know about Judaism at that time, that Mary was probably in the range of 14 years old when this all happened to her. To understand that she believed God when Gabriel came and told her that this would happen to her, she believed and she acted on it. And it's so interesting that she, you know, immediately ran to Elizabeth, somebody who would understand an impossible pregnancy that the public wouldn't understand how to explain. She ran to Elizabeth from Galilee to Judea, and she was greeted by Elizabeth prophesying and the unborn John leaping for joy. And then she opens her mouth and the Holy Spirit gives her this amazing utterance at the age of 14. But we learn a lot about her in this. We learn that she knew scripture because she's quoting a couple of different Psalms in this. And one of the things that I found interesting just as a detail is that this Magnificat, as they call it, which means exalt, where Mary is exalting God, her Savior, is one of four hymns that's preserved in Luke 1 and 2. There's four specific hymns, and this is one of the four. The things that she says are kind of summarizing God's faithfulness to the nation Israel and to His people. So, what strikes you as you look at this, Nikki? What strikes me is her humility. She refers to him as the mighty one. Mm -hmm. She understands how great Yahweh is. And yet he saw her and he blessed her and chose her to do this amazing thing. It's interesting to me that Mary's song here in Luke 1 is very similar to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, 1 to 10, when she learned that she would become pregnant and she was going to bear Samuel. One of the things that's so interesting to me about Hannah's song is that that occurred at the beginning of a new era in Israel's history. Samuel was the last of the judges. There was a long line of judges, and we learn in the book of Judges at the end of the book that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And Samuel was the last of the judges, and Samuel would be the one who would inaugurate the first king, Saul, and the second king, David, who was the first king in the royal line that would have the eternal throne. Samuel was going to be the one who would take Israel from its first era, the era of the judges, and transition it into the monarchy. Now, Hannah didn't know that, but Hannah was given the words of her amazing psalm, her amazing praise to God, At that period of time when Israel was moving into the period of its monarchy, and now, hundreds of years later, Mary is inspired by the Holy Spirit to give a similar Magnificat right at the brink of the next era in God's history of His people, when she was going to bring forth the Messiah, the fulfillment of everything that the monarchy, the judges, and the prophets were foreshadowing. Now, she couldn't have seen all of that either, but she knew that God was bringing about the fulfillment of His promises, and she sang this song or spoke this psalm in the same way that Hannah had centuries before, and it was marking the beginning of a new era in God's work. That's amazing. So, Hannah's son would bring in David, and Elizabeth's son would be the forerunner to the Messiah. Yes, That's beautiful. And it gives you that 
picture of God's sovereignty and and of human action, both of these women, like you said, not knowing what what their children really were going to do, and yet given words from God that give a bigger picture. Yeah. It's incredible. When you read Mary's song, Nikki, what strikes you about the contents of it? What does she say to God and about God? Well, she refers to God as her Savior, which undoes the notion that she was perfect. Yes. There are some who believe that she was perfect, and even Mary says here that he is her Savior. There are some who even say that Mary was the product of an immaculate conception, Mm -hmm. and that's simply not scriptural. So she refers to God as her Savior. I think that's a really important point. And she proclaims the character of God beautifully in this. She talks about His sovereignty. She talks about His regard and His compassion, His mercy. She declares His mighty deeds and declares the fact that His hand has been over the, the history of the Israeli people and that He has promises for them and that He's faithful in keeping them. She just says so much about who He is. I don't know how I missed God's character as I an Adventist. I, I just thought, if you look at the Decalogue, that's the transcript. But there's so much more to know about Him than what the Ten Commandments that's so can true. convey. You know, the other thing that I thought of as I was looking at this and preparing for the podcast, Mary was elect. She was elect of God. He chose her from before the foundation of the earth. And certainly she's unique in what he did in and through her. But her calling is a lot like the calling of those who had come under the new covenant. God interrupts our life, our status quo, the mundane We're living our life thinking that we're serving God in one form or another, and He comes, and He has plans that turn our life upside down a little bit. (laughs) That's so true. So God intervenes in our lives and gives us knowledge of Him, and He gives us work to do. Yes. I'm also so struck by the fact that Mary knew Scripture. As we said before, she's quoted in this song. She has quoted from Psalm 107. And she also refers to the Abrahamic covenant. It was clear that she knew she and her people were waiting for God to fulfill His promises to Abraham. Mm -hmm. And she's acknowledging in this song that her own pregnancy was God's provision for His people. Can you even imagine what that must have felt like to this 14-year-old girl? Mm -mm. Pretty surreal, I imagine. I would think so. She recognizes that her pregnancy is... his fulfillment of his unconditional covenant with Abraham. And she knew, or the Holy Spirit gave her the words, to connect her situation with God's unfailing promises to Abraham 430 years before he established his covenant with Israel, his conditional Mosaic covenant with Israel. I mean, she says here, he has given help to Israel his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And she realized that the help he had given was through the coming birth of her son, whom she was carrying. It's amazing what God helped her to see and to say, and I'm sure that some of the reality of this didn't hit her until later. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I think about the singularly lonely life Mary had as the mother of Jesus. Now, she had Joseph, who clearly also understood, you know, nobody knows how long Joseph lived, but Mary's role was unique. She had no peers in this sense. 
yeah, she was a mom. She had a lot of peers in that sense, Mm -hmm. but none with these promises ringing in her ears, none with this mixture of embarrassment and joy and honor and shame that her life carried. And I think about how she couldn't have known at the beginning how much these things that were coming to pass in her life would both wound her and give her great hope and joy in a way that nobody else could have experienced as she walked through the birth of Jesus and his growing up years, of which we have no record. Well, in verse 56, it says Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. So we realize that Mary had come to to Elizabeth in Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy, and she left about three months later. Now, we don't know for sure. Luke isn't real specific. Since he said he was writing everything chronologically for the sake of Theophilus, we can just look at the progression of the things here in the text and say, she went home, and the next thing we find is the birth of John. So, I'm assuming she left just before the birth of John. I can't prove that, but there's that suggestion. So, Nikki, would you read the next section where we learn about the birth of John? Now, the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. So what are the highlights of this birth of John for you, Nikki? What strikes you? What stands out? Well, I think all of it. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Elizabeth and Zacharias knew before the conception of this child that they were going to have a son. Yes. And in those days, nobody had a way to find out if it was a girl or boy. That's right. So the people didn't find out until the day this child was born. And they rejoiced with them that they had this son. Yeah. The, the relatives too, which I thought was interesting because I wondered what are the relatives thinking about right. all of this? These are big claims. Sometimes family has a hard time believing you. Yes, very true. <laughs> and so here Elizabeth is having this forerunner, but of course at the same time, all of that is surrounded by the signs of Zacharias going mute and and the multitude witnessed this and they knew he'd seen a vision. And so there's a lot of credibility surrounding yeah. Elizabeth's pregnancy and delivery. I believe that she probably shared that credibility with Mary. I can't imagine what the family thought when their daughter, who was not yet married, was now pregnant. And Elizabeth is able to say, this young girl is carrying my Lord. Yes. And that shares some of that credibility. I don't know. It just made me think about some of the dynamics that we don't get to read about. So that was fun to see. I also thought it was interesting, like you pointed out earlier, Nikki, that it said all of her relatives rejoiced with her. Mm -hmm. And we've already learned that Elizabeth was a relative of Mary. 
and of her family. So we, we don't hear a thing about Mary's parents. And I sometimes wonder about them because they must have been struck with scandal as well. Mm-hmm. And yet, if they were among this group of people called the relatives, we can probably deduce that they were believers in God and that they understood that God was at work. He had broken the 400 years of silence that had dated from Malachi's last word. And they understood that Elizabeth had a providential pregnancy, and they probably also understood that Mary did. Yeah, if they believed Elizabeth, then that would also mean they had to believe Mary, because Elizabeth was the first witness (laughs) of who Christ is, and, and she proclaimed that truth. Now, on the naming, it's interesting that on the eighth day, they took him to be circumcised, and that was when they declared his name. Now, we know already that the eighth day was determined in the Mosaic Law as the day when a male Israelite was to be circumcised. In fact, it was such an important thing that Jesus makes a point in the book of John about if the eighth day after the birth of a boy comes on the Sabbath, the circumcision trumps the Sabbath as the thing that has to be observed. So, circumcision was extremely important for the identity of an Israelite child, and also for the statement that he was part of the community. So, on the eighth day, they take him to be circumcised, and everybody assumes he's going to be called the family name, Zacharias. Mm -hmm. Talk through what happens. Well, Elizabeth says, no, his name is John, and they don't understand, so they defer to the father. And he too says, John, you know, I remember one time Pastor Gary was talking about the significance of naming things and how naming something declares that you are in owner of what you're naming. And here they're taking their family name, setting it aside, and they're naming him what God named him. As Gabriel had announced. Yes. And so, in, in a sense, it's it's this act of faith and handing over their son, yeah. which also reminds me of Hannah. Right. Giving her son to God for his work. And, you know, remember also that the angel had said that John would grow up under a Nazarite vow. He would not eat any fruit of the vine. He, would, he was going to live as a Nazarite, as a holy man. So, there was a very real sense in which they were acknowledging that. And saying, he's the Lord's. The Lord has named him. The Lord has determined his job. The Lord has appointed him to fulfill prophecy. And they knew there was something unique about this child just because of the way this all came about. And to have that consensus on the baby's name, they were astonished. And then Uh (laughs) Zechariah can suddenly talk when he affirmed the name. (laughs) Isn't that so interesting? Talk about impacting the crowd. And it is clear that there was a crowd. Mm -hmm. It's clear that the whole community knew of this birth and was there and heard what the name was. Relatives, people. This was not a private birth. Mm -hmm. This was very public. And if we remember, the pattern in Scripture is that whenever God does something, when He intervenes in human history, He marks it with signs, with, with miracles that show this is from Him, this is of Him. And so, it makes sense in verse 65 that fear came on all those living around them. Yeah. They knew God was doing something after 400 years of silence. Right. That's amazing, actually. 
You know, one of the things that really strikes me about this is how public and how well witnessed the birth of John was. Yeah. He was a really significant person. Jesus said later, and it's recorded in John, that John the Baptist was more than a prophet, by the way. That's where Ellen White apparently got her own self-designation. And he also said he was greater than all the prophets of the Old Testament. John the Baptist had a very significant role as the forerunner of Christ, turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and turning the whole nation back to God. But what's so significant to me is how public this was. And Mary... When she gave birth to Jesus, just a few months later, the birth of Jesus was not public. Mm -hmm. The birth of Jesus was almost unnoticed. They were shuffled off to a manger and a stable in the middle of a huge census when the city was teeming with people. They were almost unnoticed. And instead of a crowd of people coming around and saying, oh, what are you naming him? There were shepherds who showed up because angels appeared to them. Mm -hmm. So while John the Baptist was very public, Jesus was very private. And it was interesting to me to think through the fact that, you know, Elizabeth talked earlier in the chapter here about when she learned she was being pregnant, she praised God for removing her shame. And in Israel, it was a shameful thing not to have children. It was considered a judgment of God for some reason. And Elizabeth had lived much of her life feeling like she had somehow the mark of shame against her and that God had removed that by giving her a son. But Mary never had that shame lifted from appearing to have an illegitimate son. So Jesus is born privately to a mother who perpetually carries the shame of feeling like she has an illegitimate son. Now, those who knew, knew. Joseph knew. God had sent Gabriel to tell Joseph that this was from him. There were people, obviously, who believed the story of Mary and Jesus. But as far as the nation went, as far as the priests went, as far as the leadership went, she lived under the shadow of shame, where Elizabeth's shame had been removed. Mary lived in it and lived in it with a private birth. And it was just an interesting contrast. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting that John the Baptist started out with a lot of attention. It says here that the people wondered what this child was going to be. And when he started his public ministry, we know people went long journeys to see him and hear him. Mm -hmm. But as time went on, and as he introduced Jesus to the world, he said, Jesus has to increase and I have to decrease. And this large attention of the public that he had at the beginning of his ministry dwindled away to the point that he was beheaded in prison as Jesus became better known and walked to the cross. And you take all of that in, remembering that John the Baptist is from the Levitical line. Yes. And Jesus is from the line of Judah and the priest after Melchizedek. And there's this collision point in history where that power, that attention, that leadership shifts. From the old covenant, which is based on the priesthood of Levi, to the new covenant, which is based on the priesthood of Melchizedek. And the call is to repent. Then and now. But to now, it's repent and believe. 
That is so interesting. And here in this little family cluster, and we don't know how Mary was a relative of Elizabeth. We don't know where that relationship came from, but we know that both Zacharias and Elizabeth were from the tribe of Levi. And we know that Mary was from the tribe of Judah. And Joseph. And Joseph was from the tribe of Judah. Mm -hmm. So we have Jesus, who's the son of God, who's also the son of David. And like you said, these two cousins, if you want to call them that, have an interweaving ministry where John is bringing the nation's attention to Jesus, and John decreases while Jesus increases, and it's a handoff from the Old Covenant to the New. Mm -hmm. And it really is new. Let's go on and look at Zechariah's song. This is an amazing prophecy as well, and you think about the fact that Zechariah was a priest, and this is his one thing that he did that we know of in his life, was to serve at the temple that day that Gabriel announced the birth of John. And then he shows up here at the time John is actually born, and he delivers this amazing prophecy. Would you like to read that? Yeah. So it begins in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Isn't it tender that in the middle of this prophecy, he turned and spoke to his son, his newborn? Yeah, it's quite amazing. Zacharias was told by Gabriel that he would have John. John would be the fulfillment of prophecy. But when John is born, Zacharias prophesies not only about his son, but about Jesus, who is not yet born. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he's declaring that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. And Nikki, you pointed out earlier something so significant, that at the very beginning of this, he speaks in the past tense. Yeah, I love tenses. I know. (laughs) He said, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Now, that's not John the Baptist he's talking about. No, no. This is after he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And he says that he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. He's declaring his faith in God and in his son, who's in the womb of This little cousin. (laughs) Yes, whom he has just spent three months with in the house. Yeah, mute. Mute, (laughs) mute, of course. But together. Yes. 
he saw the Lord. I think it's amazing what the Lord allowed Zacharias to see and know. After 400 years of silence in Israel, he allowed Zacharias to be the one who would break that silence to the nation, declaring what was coming, and he allowed him, along with Elizabeth, to host Mary in his home mm-hmm. in the first three months of her pregnancy. He knew who her baby was, and he is declaring that God has fulfilled his promises. You know, one other thing that really is interesting to me about this is that it reminds me of Mary's song, where she referred to Abraham. Zacharias does as well. And he says in verses 72 and 73, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you know, it reminds me of what God told Abraham all those years before, when he made his covenant with him in Genesis 15, and he told him, your people, your descendants will come back to this land after they have been enslaved to another people for 400 years. And then he told him, he would bring those people back to the land. And Zacharias is in his prophecy summarizing all of those ancient prophecies and promises that God made to Abraham. His people who've been released, who've been delivered, who've been brought out, and now he has brought about the fulfillment of the core promise he made to Abraham. As I read verse 74, where he says, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. I felt myself as a born again, Gentile Christian relating to that. Yeah. Because when you, now I understand he was referring to the promises that God would overcome their enemies and that they would be able to do this, that they would be able to live without being under the control of other nations. But as a born again, Christian I can come to my father secure. I think of what John wrote where he said that perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And we get to go before the father knowing that we have already been purchased and that our debt has been paid and we can serve him without fear now too. This is absolutely part of the fulfillment of this prophecy. And you know, whether Zacharias understood it all or not, God gave him these words, mm-hmm. and they speak to us now on this side of the cross, just as well as they spoke then. The next verses actually remind me of the Hall of Faith in Hebrews, <laughs> where these people believe what God told them, and then they act on it. And here we have Zacharias holding his newborn, standing in front of all of these people, right. and telling him everything Gabriel told him. letting him know what was going to come, that he's going to prepare the way of the Lord who will give salvation or the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of God, he's letting him know he's going to prepare the way of this beautiful gospel message. And then he quotes a prophecy about the Messiah. In verse 79, he quotes Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. In verse 2, it says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. But look just before that, 
It says, He shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. So whether or not Zacharias understood this, he's declaring a messianic prophecy that this child would shine a light onto the Gentile people as well. And his son is going to be the one that's making the way straight Mm -hmm. for that yet unborn child who is making a light shine on both Jews and Gentiles who walk in darkness. This section ends with just the simple statement that the child, John the Baptist, continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, the deserts are the deserts of Judah, of Judea, which are down near the Dead Sea, and they are very, very dry. (laughs) But the point is, he was not well known. He was not in the public eye. After that very public birth, he grew up quietly and lived in the deserts until his ministry began. And we know from what we learn in the other Gospels that John the Baptist must have been somewhere around the age of 30 when his ministry began because he was about Jesus' age. And Jesus began his public ministry about the age of 30. And John the Baptist showed up just before Jesus became publicly known, and they coincided and overlapped. It's interesting to think about. Jesus lived a quiet and non-public life until his ministry began, and John the Baptist did as well. But Zacharias let the whole nation know what was coming. So in this section, we see this witness lineage of Mary, Elizabeth, the baby John in utero, Zacharias, all who were present for the circumcision, all who lived around Elizabeth and Zacharias, their relatives, and all the people in the hill country of Judea. This was an explosion in their territory. And I just imagine it wasn't too difficult (laughs) for Luke to find his way back to these sources. There were eyewitnesses. This didn't happen in a cornfield with a sudden vision. (laughs) After a dark night of disappointment, this happened publicly. The nation knew what was coming, and they had the prophecies to confirm what Zechariah said at the birth of John. And as we approach this Christmas, if you haven't looked closely at who Jesus is and how he's the fulfillment of prophecy and how the forgiveness of sins was declared by God through his chosen prophets and that it was fulfilled in the person of Jesus— Look again at this Christmas story as you approach Christmas and worship the one who took on human flesh so he could die a human death for our sin, so he could be buried and rise again on the third day to give us, depraved and mortal humans, eternal life through him and have the best Christmas ever. If you have questions or comments for us, please write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly emails with new online articles every week and other ministry news. You can also donate to the ministry there as well. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And join us next week as we discuss two amazing prophecies. See you then. See you then.